Amen. I encourage you to take your Bible. Let's turn together this morning to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 11 through 26. Matthew chapter 27, verses 11 through 26. And once you find your way there, I'm going to invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Again, Matthew 27, starting in verse 11. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. And while he was sitting in the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. And when the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, And then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, Crucify him. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, Crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. And the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. And then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. You can be seated. The moment in which we are looking at this morning actually starts uh, in the first two verses of chapter 27, uh, when Matthew records that when the morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. Uh, You remember a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the first part of the trial, which was the Jewish trial. And now we're going to be looking at the civil trial, which Jesus is going to be sitting under. Uh, The Jewish trial was that before the Sanhedrin and the high priests. And here at the beginning of chapter 27, after they had found what they thought was a notable accusation, the accusation of blasphemy, uh, they said, you've heard it yourself. He's declared himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah. He's committed blasphemy and he is worthy of death. Now they drag him off to see Pilate the governor. Now, interspersed in between there, we find the story of Judas and the events that happen and take place in Judas's life. And then here in verse 11, Matthew picks back up the scene as Jesus is brought before Pilate. And what's interesting here is there's a lot of series of events of things that happen inside this passage, some expected and some unexpected. And so the first thing that I want you to notice in this passage this morning is the governor's unexpected examination. Now, the governor's unexpected examination. Now, there was a reason for which the Jewish leaders took Jesus before Pilate, the governor of this region. He was the proconsul. He was the one established by the Roman government to be in ruling and reigning here over Jerusalem. 
And the reason that they took him to Pilate was because they had to have his permission in order to put someone to death. Now, they had this all planned out, and perhaps many scholars believe that they had already gone to Pilate ahead of time, and they had already prepped to him for what they were going to do. Because if you remember back in the story of Jesus' arrest in the garden, you remember that the high priests and the Sanhedrin had a Roman cohort of troops with them. And the only way that they would have been able to get that cohort of troops with them was, to, again, to get permission from Pilate in order to do so. So Pilate was already unacknowledged and already aware of what was going to take place. And again, we find this happening in the very early morning hours, perhaps around four o'clock in the morning, by the time they get him to Pilate. And so what the Pharisees expected was, because they had already set all this up ahead of time, they expected to be able to go into Pilate. They had an accusation that they could level against Jesus, that he had committed blasphemy and is worthy of death. They expected Pilate to rubber stamp the issue, and they could get Jesus immediately to the cross. But something happens in the meantime, the time when they have gone to Pilate, and the time that Jesus arrives before Pilate in this moment. They had to get permission from Pilate in order for him to be put to death. But what we find here in this moment is that when Jesus comes before Pilate, he decides now that he actually wants to examine Jesus for himself. That's why I said it was an unexpected examination. The high priests weren't counting on this. They weren't expecting this to happen. Again, they expected to come in and just for Pilate just to rubber stamp this crucifixion and allow them to move upon their way. But it is perhaps because of Pilate's desire to understand and know more about the situation, perhaps again because of the, the, the consequences he knew that would happen if he did something outside of, of, of a correct, proper procedure. He desired to know and understand what was going on. Now, Matthew gives us the least amount of information about this particular story than any of the other gospel writers. So in order to understand the full concept and the full picture of what's happening here, we have to bounce back and forth between some of the other gospel writers to understand this. But notice what he says in verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And he said to him, It is as you say. Now, Luke tells us that when Jesus came before Pilate, he said that the high priests and the Pharisees began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding attacks to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him and said, it is as you say. So you'll notice here from the time in which the first trial had happened and they accused Jesus of blasphemy and they said this is the reason he deserves death to the time now that they arrive here before Pilate, the story has somewhat changed. Again, and, and commentators believe it, it's because they didn't know how to respond to Pilate in this moment when he says, I want to evaluate this situation for myself. So they mentioned three things here. They said they found him misleading the nation finding forbidden attacks to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, there's a lot of interesting things in those three accusations. Number one, it says they found him as a man misleading the nation. So basically trying to start some type of uprising. Now, we know from Jesus' life that this is not anything characteristic of how Jesus was. In fact, when the people attempted to make Jesus a king, what did he do? He, he went away. He rejected that advance. He rejected that offer that they were trying to make to him. 
They object, they accuse him of forbidding to pay taxes to Caesars, but in fact, what did Jesus say? He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar, and unto God the things that are God's. And then finally, they said that he is making himself Christ a king. Now, Jesus did say that he is a king, but it's not the king in the sense of what they are looking for. In their idea of the king, they're looking for a Messiah who would come and establish an earthly kingdom. And Jesus even tells Pilate in one of the other gospel accounts, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not of this realm. So Pilate begins to look at this situation and he begins to evaluate Jesus. He begins to ask him these questions. Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, it is as you say. John tells us, that when he came in, that Pilate actually in, uh, in investigated or, or interrogated Jesus twice. He says, when they first came in, Pilate asked, what kind of accusation do you bring against this man? And they just said to him, if he were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. And at that moment, Pilate looked at him and says, well, if that's the case, then you do to it yourselves. You deal with the situation. And the Jews said, we're not permitted to put anyone to death. So Pilate entered into the praetorium, the region there, or the house there where he was at, and he asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative, or did another tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priest delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would not be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Then Pilate said to him, So are you a king? Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? So this was an unexpected examination. Here is Pilate interrogating Jesus, asking him these questions. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, Pilate viewed this from one perspective. Again, Pilate's perspective was much like what the Pharisees would have been teaching about the Messiah, that Jesus, if he was the king of the Jews, was going to establish some type of earthly kingdom. And when Jesus answers into the affirmative that he is the king of the Jews, he's saying it from the sense of he is the king of the Jews as the Messiah. He's not now here in this moment establishing an earthly kingdom, but he is the one who has been sent by God. He is the one who has come and fulfilled all the prophecies that had been given about the Messiah. So they come to Pilate seeking permission to crucify Jesus. They come to Pilate expecting to very easily get this permission to crucify Jesus. But then during this unexpected examination, a problem arises. Not only does Pilate begin to ask these questions of Jesus, but Pilate comes to a determination that is the exact opposite of what the Pharisees thought that he would come. At the end of that passage we just read in John, he tells us, And when Jesus had said this, he went out to the Jews and said to them, I find no guilt in him. Again, Luke chapter 23, then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. And look back at our passage this morning. And go down to verse 23. And he said, why, what evil has he done? 
Instead of being fully convinced by what the Pharisees had to say, by what the Sanhedrin had to say, Pilate came to quite the opposite conclusion. As he looked and he evaluated Jesus and he watched what was happening, he realized this man has truly done nothing wrong. And what was so convincing about what Jesus did? Well, it tells us here in the text. Verse 11 says that when the governor himself, when Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus says, it is as you say. And again, you remember from a few weeks ago when Jesus says something in this way, he's not saying it, you have that opinion. He's, he's saying, it is as you say, that's true. What you're saying is a true statement. But notice verse 12. He says, and while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge, so the governor was quite amazed. Why did Jesus, again, not speak in this moment? Go back to Isaiah chapter 53. As a lamb before its shearer stands silent, so did Jesus stand silent before his accusers. Why? Because Jesus didn't have to answer for those accusations. He was innocent of those charges. He had done nothing wrong. He had no defense that was necessary to give because he had not done anything that they had accused him of doing. When your conscience is clear, you don't feel the need to give a response back to false accusations. And Jesus knew that those accusations were according to the Father's will because it was through those accusations that he was going to be obedient to go to the cross. But what struck Pilate in such a a definitive way is that Jesus answered so boldly in saying that he was the king of the Jews, but then when all these accusations came, that he was misleading the nation, that he was causing an uprising, that he was forbidding the paying of taxes to Caesar, that he was making himself a king, Jesus stands there silent and does not give a defense. And what's so ironic about that was if Jesus were the man that he was accused of being, There's no way he would have stood silent in the face of all those accusations. Because a man who's causing an uprising, a man who would be so bold as to forbid the paying of taxes to Caesar, would not stand by and let people say things about him without giving some sort of defense of his actions and of his character. So in this unexpected examinations, the Jewish leaders find themselves in quite a problem because they have desired to see Jesus put to death. But now here, Pilate sees no guilt in this man. He sees no reason to put him to death. But the problem is, is that Pilate is a man who is under authority. And his authority is the Roman government. And he understands the problems that he had had, because if you go back and you study history, what you'll find is that when Pilate came into power there in Jerusalem, he did not do so in such a way as to gain all the admiration and the respect of the Jewish people. In fact, when he had first come to Jerusalem, he had marched in the middle of the night uh, with all of his soldiers with these large big banners that had the ensign or the sign of the Roman government on them. And he marched into the city, into places where the Jewish people saw these signs hanging up and they saw that it says a blasphemous action. And so they had complained to Rome against Pilate. And then not too long after that, Pilate had taken money from the treasury of the temple in order to build an aqueduct system to bring water into the city. And again, they were angry with Pilate over that things and complained against him. And again, there was a moment where some people had started an uprising against him and he had sent soldiers into the crowd disguising as the regular people with clubs 
and had killed a number of the people in the middle of that situation. So Pilate and the Jewish people as a whole were not on the best of circumstances. And he knew that if something else began to take place there in Jerusalem, there was a very high likelihood that he would be taken out of power, that his position would be taken away from him by Caesar. And the chief priests knew this as well. And so as they are standing there, they begin to make more accusations against Jesus. And they tell Pilate, they said, well, if you don't deal with this situation yourself, then basically we're going to tell Rome about it. We're going to tell Rome about what you are doing and what you're not doing. Which leads to our second point this morning, the governor's circumvention. The governor's circumvention, because now... Pilate realizes that he's in a difficult spot. He looks at Jesus and he sees the accusations. He hears the cries of the high priest. But he also realizes that he does not see Jesus as guilty. He sees him as an innocent man. But he's got to do something to appease the people. He's got to do something to calm them down. He's got to do something to make them happy. And so Pilate begins to think in his mind, what can I do in order to escape and to find myself in the clear. How can I make, in a sense, both sides happy, make himself happy and not condemning an innocent man, but also make the high priests and the religious leaders happy? Well, the first thing we need to understand is that there was a tradition that had been established by the Roman government for the Jewish people. And look at verse 15. It says, Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any prisoner whom they wanted. Now, in the study of history, they don't know when this tradition started. It was not a biblical tradition. It was something that the Roman government had established around the time of Passover. Remember, Passover is the celebration of the Jewish people, of their their freedom from bondage, their deliverance out of bondage, out of Egypt. And so it's thought that the Roman government, as a way to make an appeasement to the Jewish people, since they were under the control of the Roman government, that every year they would say, well, we'll release one prisoner to you during the time of Passover, as a sign of good gesture, as a sign of goodwill and demonstration of, of what you're celebrating and what's going on. So this was a tradition that had been going on for years and years. And Pilate thought to himself, well, here is my way out. I will offer a prisoner for release, but I will offer uh, two prisoners for release, and they can choose between the two. And if I put Jesus on one side, and I put another prisoner on the other side, and I make this prisoner the most heinous prisoner that we can find, surely to goodness they'll choose Jesus as the one to be released, and then I'll be free of this problem. Now notice at verse 16 it says, Now at the time they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Mark tells us that he had been imprisoned with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the insurrection. It says, but they all cried out together saying, away with this man and release for us Barabbas. And it says that he was the one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. So you have this murderous insurrectionist, this man who had caused an uproar in the city. This man who had caused murder to to, to occur. These are the two contrasting people that you have in front of them. 
Now, the reason, why was Pilate doing this? He was understanding of the innocence of Jesus, and he wanted to release Jesus. And in fact, that's what uh, Luke tells us in chapter 23 and verse 20. Pilate wanting to release Jesus. This was his desire. He did not want to have anything to do with what was, what was going on in this moment. Because the Scripture also tells us here in Matthew in verse 18, he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. Pilate was able to look and to calculate the truth of the situation. It wasn't because Jesus had done anything wrong. It was because the chief priests and the Pharisees were envious of Jesus. And why were they envious of Jesus? Because he was a teacher unlike they were. He was a teacher that actually taught as one who had authority. He was one who had come in and begin to teach things that were contrary to what they had been teaching. And they were losing political power. They were losing monetary wealth. They were losing everything that they had built and established their lives for. And they were envious of the position of Jesus. And this is why they wanted him dead. So Pilate, in an effort to circumvent what was happening, in an effort to escape this, he comes up with this plan that he will put Barabbas and Jesus before the people. But what we understand was that this plan was unsuccessful because as Jesus is standing there and Barabbas is standing there and Pilate says, Whom do you want for me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? The people looked at the contrast. A man who had done nothing wrong and a man who was a murderer. Isn't it interesting in this situation that on the one hand you have Jesus who has committed no sin, who has done nothing wrong, who is, who is accused by the Pharisees and the high priests of being an insurrectionist. They're saying this man is telling people to not worship Caesar. This man is telling people to not give his money to Caesar. This man is stirring up trouble in the city, and therefore he deserves to die. And yet, on the other hand, you have a man who was convicted of being an insurrectionist. He had done these things. He had stirred up trouble in the city. So much trouble, in fact, that he had murdered someone in the midst of this insurrection. And yet when they look at the two of them, they cry out for the freedom of the one who was truly guilty instead of the man who was innocent. It's quite a contrast that the Pharisees and the high priests are accusing Jesus of insurrection, but yet they are encouraging the people to free the man who was truly guilty of insurrection. It shows us the hatred inside the hearts of the Pharisees and the high priests. So Pilate had tried to circumvent these situations. He had tried to avoid the problems of what was going on, but his plan had completely failed because the people cried out, we want Barabbas. We want Barabbas. Now I want you to notice just briefly in this interspersed here is a verse. In verse 19, it's the only found here in the book of Matthew. And it leads us to our third point this morning, the Spirit's occasion. Verse 19 says that while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Now again, Matthew's the only one who gives us this little insight into an event that happened here as Pilate was sitting in judgment, evaluating what he was going to do with Jesus. 
And there are some certain things and some uncertain things that we can view about this passage. The uncertainty is, is we don't know exactly what this dream was. And we don't know why she dreamed what she did. Many people have tried to assume maybe what had happened, that perhaps because, obviously being Pilate's wife, that she had saw the Pharisees and the the high priest come in and explain to them what was going on. She had heard or overheard the plans and what was taking place. And then as she went to bed that night, she was grieved in her spirit. She was awoken by this dream of what was going to happen. Or perhaps it was a a gift, a a dream from the Holy Spirit uh, that he had given to her that she might know and understand exactly what was taking place. Those are the things that we don't know. We can't be certain about that because the Scripture does not give us clarity on those things. The thing that we can be certain about is that she had this dream and that God used this dream. Whatever its cause may have been, God used this dream for his purposes in this situation. Scripture tells us that everything that happens... And especially everything that is happening in this moment, book of Acts chapter 2, verse 23 tells us, was by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. So she has this dream, and it, and it grieves her so much that she gets up from where she's at, and she interrupts Pilate in the middle of this judgment. You have to understand, this would have been a very big situation. This would have been a very daring and bold thing for her to do, as while he's sitting in the judgment seat evaluating the situation, for her to make her way in there to the courtroom and to go up to him and interrupt the proceedings to tell him, listen, don't have anything to do with this righteous man, for I've suffered greatly in a dream because of him. This was a moment. And this was a moment that I believe that God gives to every single person. When we're about to do something that we should not do, God gives us a moment to awaken our responses and to awaken and be awakened to our conscience and to the things that are going on. Here's a moment where Pilate could have said, based upon what I've already personally feeling, because I believe that Jesus is innocent, now my wife comes in and she's basically telling me the very same thing. Brothers and sisters, if you were in this moment that you're convicted about something, something you know that somebody is asking you to do, you know that it's wrong. You know what your spirit is telling you. You're telling you that it's wrong to do. And then all of a sudden somebody comes up to you out of nowhere and tells you, hey, the thing you're about to do, it's wrong. Don't do it. What do you think you should do? You should not do that thing. But what we find here in this moment is that Pilate did not listen. Tragically, because of other things surrounding him, Pilate chose to deny not only his own conscience, but deny the response of his wife in this dream. And notice she says there, have nothing to do, not just with that man, but that righteous man. We don't know how she understood who Jesus was. Again, we don't know whether it was because she had seen him before. We don't know whether it had been revealed to her in this dream. We don't understand that. But the fact of the knowledge is that she knew that Jesus was no ordinary man, that he was a righteous man, and that what was getting ready to happen was tragically wicked. Now, I want you to notice not only the Spirit's occasion here, but also the people's fickleness. These are very, very fickle people. How do we know that? Well, because just a few days earlier, what happened? Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And the people celebrated Him, saying, Hosanna, King of the Jews, and laying the palm branches and their jackets down as Jesus marched into the city. 
Now, there's nowhere in Scripture that tells us that the people here in this moment are the same people that were hailing him as he marched into the city. We can't make that firm determination. But what we can see and understand was that everybody would have known that when Jesus came into the city, he had come in as a king. He had marched in in this, and in this sense of a coronation in the way that a king walked into the city. People would have known, so some of those would have been there. Some of those would have seen those things take place. They would have understand who Jesus was and the claims that he had been making. But here in this situation, we find the fickleness of the people to be turned so easily. Now again, remember, these people had followed Jesus around everywhere. They had watched him. They had seen him heal the sick and raise the dead and cause the blind to see and the deaf to hear. And so they cried out for Barabbas. And then Pilate's wife comes in. And apparently it must have taken a few moments for this conversation to happen. It wasn't as quick as we read it here, obviously, in the Scriptures. And something happens in the intermediary moments between when Pilate had first asked about Barabbas and what the response is going to be. And it tells us that in verse 20, it says, But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. So these fickle people are very easily led by wicked encouragement. Brothers and sisters, just because the crowd says it is okay does not mean it is okay. Just because somebody who is a spiritual elite says it is okay does not mean it is okay. You look out here and you see the scribes and the Pharisees, and no doubt the people were we're somewhat confused as to what to do, right? Because they see Jesus, they see his innocence, they see who he was. But here are the high priests, the religious leaders of the day, who are telling them, no, don't do this, ask for Barabbas. Don't ask for Jesus, ask for Barabbas. We don't know what they told them, but in some way, they were able to convince the people to turn upon Jesus and to ask for Barabbas instead. No doubt it was some because they just trusted the religious leaders, right? They had known them their whole life. These were supposed to be the men who were men of God, who were teaching them. But brothers, any time, brothers and sisters, any time someone who claims to be a follower of Christ or a religious leader tells us to do something or encourages us to do something that is outside the confines of God's holy word and scripture, we are not to obey them. We're not to do what they tell us to do. We're not to follow after them. And I say that today because we have a lot of that happening. You can look across the world at various other denominations and you see those very things happening. You see inside the United Methodist Church. You see inside the Episcopal Church. You see inside the Catholic Church. Religious leaders who are telling people that it's okay to pursue alternative lifestyles. That God's okay with those kinds of things. But rather, the Scriptures are very clear about those types of things. You see them saying, well, God's Word is not entirely true. It just contains certain bits of truth, but certain parts aren't very true. Just because someone claims a spiritual authority does not mean that they're always going to be telling the truth. That's the reason the Scripture tells us to be like Bereans, to take what we hear here and to go back to the Word and to study the Bible and to study it for ourselves, to know the truth of what God is saying. But perhaps, no doubt, some of them were just pushed in by peer pressure. Because other people around them to begin to cry out for Barabbas, so did other people too. Because, brothers and sisters, we cannot... We cannot 
forget how powerful that is. It's the reason why we talked about Peter's positioning himself amongst Jesus' enemies there outside the Sanhedrin. It's the reason why Psalm chapter 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. When we surround ourselves continually with people who are not believers, we will find ourselves influenced by them and making decisions like them and doing things like them before we even realize what is happening. I remember so very clearly a story that I will never forget. When I was in middle school, our middle school history teacher shared a story about her grandmother. And her grandmother was growing up in Europe during the time of World War II. When, well, really the preceding years of World War II in the early 1930s when Hitler was first beginning to rise to power. And a lot of people were already questioning his motives and the things that he was doing. But it was before the, the full breadth of every the evil thing that he was doing was found out. He was touring all around in different places and leading these big events and, 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 and stirring up people to follow after him. And I remember my teacher said that her grandmother asked her mother if her and her friend could go to this place wherever Hitler was speaking and to hear him speak that day. And her mother forbid it. She said, no, you can't go. We're not a part of that. We don't agree with him. You cannot go. But my teacher's grandmother and her friend went anyway. And as she was relaying the story, she said, I remember my grandmother telling me, she's like, we just went because of the, the interestingness of it all, right? Because just to see this man who had grown so powerful and had so much influence, she said, we didn't agree with anything that he had to say. We didn't agree with his methodology or with his principles, and she said, we're sitting here in this, in this large stadium gathering wherever it was. She said, and we're listening to him speak. She said, and all of a sudden, by the very end, we found ourselves doing the Hail Hitler and raising our hands along with everybody else, even without even realizing what we were doing. She said, the, the influence of the crowd, the influence of all those who were there and everybody else around you doing it provoked us in such a way that we found ourselves following right along with the crowd. And brothers and sisters, such a dangerous place to be. And it doesn't have to be you following into a crowd of of, of a lot of people who are not followers of Christ. It's not saying that you have to, if you hang out with just large crowds of lost people all the time, that you will be influenced in such this way. It can be as simple as one person. If we spend all of our time, all of our moments, if we spend and make our companions, make our best friends, our our dearest companions, those people who do not have a relationship with Christ, then we will find ourselves eventually be pulled away from the truth of who Christ is and being influenced by those who are outside of Christ. The Scripture is full of encouragement and warning against those things. So these people were led by wicked encouragement. So they're so fickle. A few days ago, they're celebrating Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. Now they're crying for the release of Barabbas. And so then Pilate asks them a powerful question. He says, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And at this powerful question, these people fling themselves headlong into wickedness. Because their response, verse 22, is they all said, crucify him. Now, as we read this passage, it's, 
it's very easy for us to overlook what a powerful moment this is, right? Because we know Jesus' life. We know he's going to be crucified. We, we know this is what's supposed to happen. We know this is how all these events unfold. So when we read the response here, we're like, okay, we're just following the, the collective narrative here. They cried out, crucify him, and, and this is how all of these things unfolded. But you can tell how powerful a moment this is by Pilate's response here. And again, this is not a man who is afraid to put people to death. This is not a man who is afraid to do rather unsavory things. But Pilate realizes what's going on here. He realizes that Jesus has done nothing wrong. He realizes the only reason that he's in front of him today is because of the envy and the pride of the scribes and the Pharisees. And so he's already astonished that the people have chosen to have a murderous insurrectionist instead of this innocent man. And he says, okay then, now that you've chosen Barabbas, then then what should we do with this man who's called Jesus? What should we do with Jesus the Christ? And when they begin to cry out, crucify him, notice verse 23, he says, why? What evil has he done? You can tell the astonishment in Pilate's heart. He's just taken aback saying, what what are you saying? Why would we crucify this man? The the most grotesque death that Roman government had in putting prisoners to death, crucifixion. Why would we do this? And it says that they kept shouting all the more, crucify him. Pilate's trying to reason with the people. He's trying to ask them, "What, what else could we be done? But they just continue crying louder, crucify him. In fact, the original language alludes to the fact that they weren't even saying crucify him, but just saying crucify So you can just hear this mass of people, hundreds of thousands of people just chanting, crucify, 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 over and over and over. And the noise just echoing louder and louder. Because it tells us that Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing. And rather that a riot was starting. So they have plunged themselves headlong into wickedness. Notice what else happens. We're going to come back to verse 24 in just a moment. Pilate washes his hands and he says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And look at verse 25. And all the people said, now remember, this is in the midst of this chant of crucify, crucify, crucify. Pilate says, I'm innocent of this man's blood. And what do they say to him in response? They say, his blood shall be upon us and on our children. They're acknowledging here their sinfulness. They're acknowledging here their guilt. Basically what they're saying is, may all the guilt fall upon us for what we're about to do. And if anything be wrong, His blood is on us, and not just on us, but on our children. Now some commentators have pointed out, it's interesting here, that, that they don't limit the amount of generations, because sometimes you would see in the Scriptures where it would say, you know, upon our children and our children's children. So there was a limit of, of generational here. What they're saying is that may the blood of Jesus be upon our nation forever and ever and ever. Brothers and sisters, all we have to do is look at the history of the Jewish people and we understand how this has been played fully out. In just a few short years after this, A.D. 70, the judgment of God would fall upon Jerusalem as Jerusalem would fall and be captured and the temple would be burned to the ground. Why? Because of their rejection of Jesus. 
because of their crucifixion of the Messiah, because of their willingness to play a part in this role. Even though all of this was happening by the preordained providence of God, it did not erase their guilt and their responsibility for the actions that they committed. They were plunged headlong into wickedness. I want you to notice now the governor's failed recusal. Go back to verse 24. He says that he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. Pilate made all these efforts to release him. In fact, the one we haven't talked about this morning is, in, 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 because it's not here in this text, but it is in the other passages, is that about halfway through the proceedings, the high priest said something about Jesus being a Galilean. And in that moment, Pilate said, oh, well, this is perfect. If he's a Galilean, I can send him to Herod. And Herod can deal with this situation himself because Herod was the one who ruled over all the things for the Galileans. So Pilate sends Jesus away to Herod. Herod also interrogates Jesus, finds nothing to condemn him of, and sends him back into Pilate's lap once more. So Pilate has attempted to recuse himself from this case by saying that he finds him innocent. He has attempted to recuse himself by sending him to Herod. He has attempted to recuse himself by offering up Barabbas. He's attempted to recuse himself, one of the other gospel writers says, by offering just to have Jesus scourged or beaten. But they would not take the bait. And so here in this moment, Pilate says... His blood is not on my hands. He washes his hands in a symbolic gesture that the the Jewish people would have understood because it was a a symbol of the erasure of guilt. It actually came from Deuteronomy chapter 21 where there was a, if there was a situation where a murder had occurred in a village and they could not find the murderer and they could not find the one who was guilty, they could wash their hands symbolically and say, Father, you know, forgive us. We did not shed this blood. We didn't see who did it. You know these things, and so we ask that you would remove the blood guilt from us. But here's the problem in this situation. No amount of hand washing could erase the guilt from Pilate's hands. Because even though he wants to escape the guilt, the fact is in this moment... He could have stopped what was happening. He could have released Jesus. He could have sent him home. He could have sent him away. But he was too afraid of losing his power and his prestige. He was too afraid of the Pharisees and of the Sadducees and of the Sanhedrin. He was too afraid of the people. And so he chose to bind his own conscience. He goes, chose to ignore the truth that he knew. And he chose to allow them to have Jesus and to crucify him. And it didn't matter how much he washed his hands or what he said. The guilt of Jesus' death was just as much upon him as it was upon the Jewish people who were standing there crying, crucify, crucify, crucify. Verse 26 tells us that he then released Barabbas for them, and after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. There's a thought by many scholars that this final scourging of Jesus was an attempt, again, that maybe placiate the the desires of the people, that if he had Jesus beaten in such a way that perhaps they would give up on the demands to have him crucified. Now to be scourged in a Roman trial was to be stretched out over a large piece of wood or a table with your hands stretched out one way and your legs stretched out the other so that the full of your back is exposed. 
And then they would take a whip called the cat of nine tails. It was a leather whip that had nine strands on it. And each one of those strands was tied pieces of metal and glass and bone. And what they would do is you would have two guys who would be whipping at the same time. So as one was pulling in and pulling out, the other would be coming from the opposite direction. And what this scourging would do is the whip went into the back, those pieces of glass and metal and those shards of bone would dig into the skin. And then as they pulled the whip back, it would rip open the flesh of the one who was being scourged. Tradition tells us that most times, in fact, oftentimes, the ones who had been sentenced to crucify never actually made it to the cross because they died in the midst of the scourging. Because it was not uncommon for them to be scourged so severely that their internal organs would be visible from the outside of their body as these pieces of instruments of torture would rip open the entirety of their flesh. And we know that the Scripture teaches us that Jesus' scourging was such that He was no longer recognizable as a man. The brutality of what they had done to Him. Pilate attempted to erase his guilt by washing his hands and then having him scourged and giving him over. But he could not erase the guilt. The people attempted to erase their responsibility, saying by saying, His blood be upon us, right? It was in a sense of saying, we, we know that we're right. We're not afraid to call upon the judgment of God upon us because His blood be upon us and upon our children. All in the response to this question, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? This was a question that Pilate asked. But it is a question that all people must answer. Not just for the Jews who were standing there in his courtroom that day. This is a question that every person must ask because every person comes to a moment or a place in their life where you're faced with that question, what will you do with Jesus? How will you respond to Jesus who is called the Christ? Will you respond by putting your faith and trust in Him, by believing in Him, following after Him, serving Him, giving Him the entirety of your life? Or will you respond to Him by rejecting Him? By rejecting Him with your actions, by rejecting Him with your words, by rejecting Him with your deeds? Will you respond to Him By refusing to acknowledge His power. By refusing to acknowledge His position and His place. You cannot erase the guilt that is on your life. You cannot erase the sin that is on your life by your own power and ability. You cannot erase it away. The only thing that you can do is flee to Christ. The only thing that you can do is cling to Him in this moment this morning. These people here are committing the most heinous atrocity that had ever been known at this time and at any point in human history. You look back, what is the greatest sin that has ever been committed? And it was the crucifixion of the very Son of God. But the good news is this morning, remember Jesus' words upon the cross? What did Jesus do when He looked down and after He had experienced all of these things? 
when he experienced the false accusations, when he experienced the rejection not only of his people and of his disciples, when he had looked down and he saw the people crying, crucify, crucify, and he had been beaten and whipped and mocked and then hung upon a cross as Jesus looked down, what did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Brothers and sisters, what good news that is for us this morning. God stands today with the free offer of Jesus Christ. He stands here today and He asks this question to you this morning. What will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And it's up to you this morning how you respond. Will you respond by faith and trust in Him? Or will you respond by rejecting Him? Because there's freedom, there's forgiveness available through Jesus Christ and the work that He did on the cross. So if you're here this morning and you've never put Jesus Christ in your life as your Lord and Savior, you've never trusted in Him to follow after Him, today is the day. The Scripture says today is the day of salvation. And that is the question that Jesus is saying before you today. What will you do with me? What will you do with Jesus who is called the Christ? But perhaps you're here this morning and you are a believer you know you put your faith and trust in Christ. Then this morning, the question is for you is, what are you doing with Christ? Not in the sense of how are you coming to Him for salvation, but are you living your life in full obedience to Him? Now, there's not a single person in this room who could stand here today and say, I'm living my life in full obedience to Christ. Because we can't do it. In our sinfulness and our weakness, we can't be fully obedient to Christ. But are you seeking to live your life in full obedience to Christ? Because that's how we should live. Even if we can't do it in our own strength and in our own abilities, we should seek to live our lives in full obedience to Him. We should seek to give Jesus control of every aspect and part of our lives. Not just some, but all. That we may glorify and honor Him. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we thank You for this message. We thank You for Your Word. Lord, I thank You for Lord, we thank You for the truth that we understand from the Scriptures of Jesus' willingness to die. Lord, His willingness to suffer of His willingness to be mocked and ridiculed, that He might fulfill Your will, that He might go to the cross and to provide a way for us to be forgiven. Father, we're thankful this morning that although we can't erase the guilt of our sin from our hands this morning by anything that we do, that our guilt can be totally and completely erased by the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross. Lord, I pray this morning if there's someone here who does not know you today as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day. Lord, perhaps they've realized that for years and years they have acknowledged the truth of who you were, but have never fully followed through in obedience to you. Lord, I pray for those of us this morning who are believers in Christ, Lord, that you may ignite a passion in us to live more boldly for you, understanding Deeply, each day what Christ has done, Father, may we be driven to live more passionate lives for the glory of God. And we ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.